This is the Creative Life Show, celebrating being highly creative in a less creative world. I'm Joanna Peters, coach and mentor to professional creatives and creative professionals, and I talk to other creatives, innovators and thinkers about how we create, face down our critics, stay on track, get noticed and paid, and do the work we want to do. And I'm sharing the progress of my own book, all about creative people and how we thrive. Hello and welcome. There are at least three ways I could introduce today's guest. He's a songwriter, record producer, guitarist and composer for film and TV. He's won four Emmy Awards and he's worked with musicians including Stevie Wonder and Paul Simon. Alternatively, I could introduce the entrepreneur. He was a sales director for a major new digital music technology in the 1980s. He's the founder of two record companies and discovered Lana Del Rey. Alternatively, he is a senior Buddhist teacher who travels the world teaching meditation, running workshops and writing. David Nickton, welcome to the Creative Life Show. How do you introduce yourself at parties? Well, just like that. But by the time I'm finished, the person has already finished their drink and gone home. (laughs) (laughs) But that was pretty good, Joanna. (laughs) But David, you've had this long career in multiple fields. What does it mean to you at this point in your life to lead a creative life? Yeah, well, my theory about creativity is that it's the fundamental ground of our whole existence. So, you know, when I'm always amazed at workshops when people say they're not creative and I kind of take them to task for that because fundamentally life is creation itself. So for me, as an individual person, creativity means can you integrate the things that you are drawn to, including people, places, livelihood, uh, spiritual practice, and can you bring all those things together into an integrated piece for yourself? And I, I call that solving your life puzzle. That's what creativity really is. Solve your life puzzle. So when you are in a state, when you're integrating all those things, is that a state of creativity? Well, I think it's a state of harmony is what I would say. And I think we experience our lives as relatively less or more harmonious because there's no final end or final solution to to our existence. You know, it just keeps going on. Right. So harmony is a question of balance in process. And that's that's what I look at as uh, the kind of calibration you want to do. How harmonious is the situation? And have you reached a state of fairly consistent harmony in your life? Well, if you include the idea, musical idea of dissonance as part of the greater harmony, yes, the answer is yes. Right. Well, I love that. That makes complete sense to me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes, something, the thing that is too perfect actually has no interest, does it? Right, right. You know, we're including all the various elements, and um, some of it is just developing a deeper acceptance for how things are going and working with things as they are, which is something I talk about uh, quite a bit. We will come back to what I haven't mentioned yet, which is a new book out, which is called Creativity, Spirituality and Making a Buck. And I love this, these three things together, which at first glance I thought, oh, yeah, absolutely. But it's so easy for them to butt up against each other in our minds. But we will come back to that. Because the joy of having a guest like you on is that it looks from the outside as though you've got decades of success in multiple areas. But as every regular listener to the show will know, that is never the case. Could you take us through your story of particular creative challenge, David? Well, the reason I'm writing this book at the tender age of 71 is because it includes a lot of the journey 
and that that journey does for all of us and for myself as well include periods of imbalance and dissonance and sort of uh, tension between different aspects of life. So when we talked about this, I thought maybe I can just briefly outline the story of me in the 1970s having a very, very great moment in terms of my musical career. I wrote a hit song called Midnight at the Oasis. I was uh, living on Mulholland Drive in a very nice, uh, large house. This is in L.A. In L.A., Los Angeles. Yeah, I had a, a new wife and a baby on the way. And we were getting all set up for that. And then I received a phone call from my Buddhist teacher, who was Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, one of the great Tibetan Buddhist meditation masters who was largely responsible for bringing Tibetan Buddhism to the West. And he asked me to go to move, <laughs> on fairly short notice, to Vermont, to a Dharma center that we had created there, which at the, at the time was called Tale of the Tiger, but was, had just changed its name to Karme Chulin. And it became a major sort of uh, Dharma center in the northeast part of the United States. Right. And he wanted to you to go and run it. Yeah. And that was a big shift for us because I had a baby on the way. I had a beautiful house in the Hollywood Hills, a lot of good career action going on. And we moved into two rooms there that were the size probably of our closets at the house in Los Angeles <laughs> and lived there for two years running that center. But that's a huge shift, isn't it? You just say you've, this is your first hit that you've right. just had. Right. And you were in LA, presumably for your music career. Yes. Uh, originally, I, I moved there to, to you know, really uh, dig deep into the music business and, and performance and so forth, because that was the epicenter of it at the time. Maybe it still is. You know, a lot of the music and film world is, is centered in LA. So I was coming out there to be part of that flow. And uh, it was going well. But I was also teaching the Buddhism already at that point and deeply involved with it. So it was a tremendous sacrifice, really, from my point of view. It was, it was a real test of my ability or interest in really going deeper into the Buddhist teachings as, as an important aspect of my life. So I made that decision to do that. What did the decision feel like? Can you remember from this, this point that, what it felt like to be inside that point of I could go in either direction? Yeah, it felt a little bit like two very strong people, and each one had one of my arms, and they were determined to go in the opposite directions. <laughs> it had that kind of uh, feeling to it. On top of that, I, I would say that my wife at the time, who's the mother of my beautiful son, Ethan Nickturn, who's also a Dharma teacher here in the United States, she was not happy about the idea of moving to Vermont because <laughs> she had just moved to Los Angeles from New York. So it was challenging. So people don't develop too dreamy an idea about what meditation is or a deep dive into practice. It's not going to be a bliss ride. It's going to be challenging. So that's, um, that was very challenging. Were you turning your back on music at that point? No, never. Never, because it, it's not my back or my front. It's inside, outside, on my skin. I can't, I can't control it. But I did go to a place where music was not allowed, actually, except on certain days because it was a contemplative center. So it had a kind of a monastic, almost kind of quality to it. But, you know, I wasn't really afraid of losing my contact with music, and I knew it was going to be a temporary role there. And then very interesting stuff happened after that. So, and now it's all, looking back, you know, you can, you can see the map better looking back than looking forward a lot of the times. Did you fear for your music career at that point, or was it actually so much part of who you were? that you knew it, was, it would simply be there in two years? Well, there's, of course, 
an unspoken and spoken aspect of the entertainment business, which is what have you done for me lately is the question, you know, everybody is asking. So there was a certain amount of concern like that. My momentum would be lost. And in fact, it was actually, I had to regain that momentum. and, And then I had to do some, that's where my entrepreneurial career developed actually. So coming out of leaving Vermont, I went, Hey, I might need a job here. This is possible. But I had a very interesting coincidence develop where I, you mentioned it in your intro, connected with some people who were developing the absolute cutting edge of digital technology into the music and audio business, which was the Synclavier digital music system, which changed everything within our industry. So I got to get a, a new ride out of that, which was interfacing between an entrepreneurial technical company and re-entering the music business and audio business with that aspect of it. So... Things took care of themselves, Joanna. You know, it was interesting. In retrospect, things, I, I think there was a lot of uh, energies that were lining up. Like, I might be the pool ball, but somebody else was shooting the shot, you know? <laughs> Have you always been someone who's open to new experiences and just trying different things? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think you mentioned my book. In my book, I, I really try to delineate between synchronicity and following the magic of circumstances, the melody of circumstances. And also developing intention and strength and effort, which seems like, oh, those are two different things, but they're very connected, as I'm sure you know, with, you know, working with the people you work with, they need some kind of vision and clarity, which is very spontaneous in a way. And then they need to hook it up with the reality that they're manifesting. So I sense that's what you do with people I can tell from the website I saw. Is that right? Yeah, that is a way of doing it. And there's a lot of around the clarity and action mm-hmm. and where we want to be. Nothing happens without an intention of where we want to get to. I mean, that's really intriguing. And that's actually quite a good link into the book because there's a quote that leapt out at me when I was going through it. And you say, many times, even our making a buck issues are related to not having developed enough stability or clarity of mind. Our business or creative problems are actually spiritual problems in disguise. Yeah. <laughs> could, could you could you resonate with that? Yes, I guess I did, given the fact that I sort of, I, I noticed it down and wanted to bring it in for our conversation now. So with your move, just thinking of your move from LA to Vermont, was there an element of you going, well, actually, I am going to prioritise this spiritual area within which I work and everything else will follow? Well, I didn't know what would follow. There was a leap. I think a lot of elements in life. Sometimes you take a leap. You're not sure how it's going to come out. But I was inclined to jump and see because the relationship I had with this particular teacher was very strong. And I felt like this is the sort of core of my being that's being addressed here. Because at the end of the day, you don't get to take any of these things with you. You basically have your mind and uh, you don't even have your body at the end of the day. So the quality of clarity in your consciousness is obviously the ultimate kind of treasury that we that we can uh, contact. And it underlies everything we do. So we talk about in, in my tradition, it's called joining heaven and earth. And the mm. heaven principle is like the mind being clear. And the earth principle is then beginning to bring down your vision and ground it in reality. And when you do that, you create harmony and prosperity. That's, that's a sort of ancient uh, Asian paradigm. I love that. You introduced that very early in the book. And it's a very powerful metaphor. It seemed to me about the integration of our the spiritual and maybe intellectual and emotional side of our beings and the actual need 
and the, the joy of living in a very real world. Yeah, and if you have people who are saying they're spiritual adepts, accomplished spiritual practitioners, but they haven't mastered their day-to-day world, it's questionable, in my opinion. What does that lead to? That leads to the ultimate kind of, you could call it introductory or advanced training, that you have to be able to manifest at some level in an earth plane in order to be able to clearly demonstrate that you've mastered the kind of spiritual dimension. So if somebody is just completely, you know, can't handle their world properly, but they claim to have some kind of etheric or spiritual gift or something like that, I always want to talk to them more about that. <laughs> it's kind of a bit like show me the money, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I put, a, I put a dollar bill on the cover of the book. We just taught at a place called Bhakti Fest, which is a, you know, kind of yogic community out here in Southern California. And I could see eyebrows go up, you know, when they look at that, that I actually mentioned making a buck and put it on the cover of a book, which really is probably going to sell equally in the business world and in the, and in the kind of um, meditation communities, because they're moving towards each other. As I know, you know, there's a lot of convergence starting to happen between those two seemingly disparate communities. And I, I'm trying to address that. Why was it important for you to write this book now? You've, you've got a very busy life, clearly. You've got all sorts of musical and meditation that's going on. Why did you want to take the time to bring these two or three things together? So when, when you said that, we have a saying that I learned called first thought, best thought, which means that first thought is going to have the kind of clarity and the freshness to it. And after that, we kind of do what we call overcooking the goose, which I'm sure we got from original ties with Great Britain overcooking the goose, you know? We don't overcook things, never, never. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean the idea of cooking the goose at yeah. all. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, in the first place. So when you said that, I, in my mind, I thought, you said, why did I make this book? And then I visualized a chicken laying an egg. Why does the chicken, lay? they say which comes first, but that's not, you know, as important as in the first place, why does a chicken even bother to lay an egg, right? You could just go on being a chicken for the rest of your life. So a lot of the creative process for me actually feels like laying an egg. It's in me, and it wants to come out, and it's going to come out. And therefore, I should just sit, sit with it for a minute and allow the space for it to come out properly. And then we'll see. We'll see what we have. You know? So the book was really an egg from that point of view. And the book came from you saying, this is t- I think you've been running workshops on this topic, haven't you, for a, for a while? Yes, and I have even had a... There's a company here in the U.S. called CreativeLive.com. I'm sure you must have encountered yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, I think it's available everywhere. <laughs> yeah, similarity of the name. But, you know, we did an uh, online video workshop with that topic, and that's still up there and available for people. But my interest was in saying, well, let's look at, at my journey and see if I can express it well and clearly and see if it benefits anybody. Because... My theory was that it would benefit people who were sort of had similar concerns about integrating these different elements of life and that I had a lot of experience to share, mostly mistakes, <laughs> which is, I think, right. you know, you, you can learn from other people's mistakes or you can make the same ones. It's up to you. Yes. I mean, we all have plenty to learn from, don't we? That's an excuse. Mm. <laughs> the creativity in money is an interesting one, isn't it? Because well, there was a point of creativity when we look at things that we would define as, as creative projects, but just part of our communities, part of our community building, part of our tribes, part of our way of passing on information. And there was a point it started to become associated with, with money. And then you get patrons and then you get purchasers, then you get fans. 
And we've sort of reached a point now where it's very easy to think of creative products as commoditized. I've just done a big piece, well, the middle of a big piece of research with one of the universities in the UK, talking about creatives and level of happiness. The commonest thing <laughs> associated with unhappiness is poor levels of pay. How do you see the relationship between those two things, creative work and money? I love the way you just framed that because you went back to a kind of tribal root. And in the tribal root, which is our ancestry, we didn't have uh, you know, creative products, but we also didn't have money. There was no such thing. It was all about exchange and communication. And I believe that's still the source code for the human experience. And people are going to find it one way or another. Community, tribalism, you know, it has a dark side to it, obviously, because of the, the primitive protective side of it. But the upside is you're sharing something, right? So creativity, in the book, I talk about finding your offering which not everybody's clear about. I, again, I see that you're helping people clarify that for themselves. But once you're clear, you say, this is my offering. I want to offer this to the world. You have like a choice. Is this your livelihood offering or is this just for, for pleasure and for a hobby? And that's a huge choice. So I've counseled a lot of people on the verge of making that choice or in the middle of making that choice. It's hugely important, isn't it, to, to make that decision. I will do this in order to pay my bills or I will do this purely for joy. And the instruction that goes along with the first one is grow up because it's going to mean that you're making decisions that are based, that are reality based rather than just purely whimsical based, fantasy based. And you need to know about business. If you're going to be in the, uh, I had a friend who told me, when I first wrote that, my first, uh, you know, hit record, he said two things. First, he, he was a Southern guy. He said, David, music business money don't last long because you're going to get an influx of money and you think you're going to have it forever and you won't. But the second thing he said was music business is two words. Right. Yeah. Right. So you need to understand business. If you're going to be an artist as a professional, you can't just be naive about it. You have to really have some understanding of how business operates and how your business in particular operates. And when you're talking to people about that, when you're counselling people through that, what reaction do you often get? I know, I know what I get. I'm curious to know how people you work with respond to that. It's like they look on their faces like they're waking up from a deep slumber. <laughs> so that can be good. You know, people are sparked by it because Look, we know a lot of artists, and they've been struggling for a long time without clarity about what we just talked about. So it can be a big reveal or a big relief to, to look at it more intentionally and then to also map up the skills that you have. But I also offer freely, because you're talking about the tribal you know, background of all this, if your creativity and your offering is just something you do for love, please have at it. Do you know the movie Babette's Feast? I don't. I haven't seen it. I know of it. Yeah, it's beautiful because it's just this w woman who's a chef and she just decides, I'm going to create this extraordinary feast. But there's no money in it. It's not about that. So if you're going to cook for your family for Thanksgiving, if you're going to write songs and sing at your local pub for love and beer, that's all good. But the minute you say, no, I really want to uh, have this be the base of my livelihood, as I say, there's time for another conversation about it. Is the challenge to keep the joy in it when you are having to sell it. I mean, that's the classic. <laughs> you know, I don't want to answer too quickly because you, you might be asking a really great question there. So I want to think about it for a minute. 
you know, joy, joy is a is um so here's the here's how I would say this about creativity. Even just creativity itself comes from joy and inception stage of a creative burst, a kind of opening, you know, in the shower, you're walking through a meadow, you you look at a beautiful friend's face, you look at a child, and you you know, this is where the creative or you look at a difficult situation uh, on the other hand and you have some inspiration. That's the start. I call that inception. That's like the beginning of the thing. Now, even if you're not making it as a product, there's a second stage, which is um, realizing that idea fully, manifesting that idea through to completion stage, even if you're doing it as a hobby. And if you want to do it as a livelihood, there's a third stage, which is bringing it to the marketplace. So you have inception, you have manifestation, and then you have do you want to bring it to the marketplace? And then you have a complete cycle. And the whole thing could be joyful if you're a joyful person. <laughs> and presumably, and this is, I'm wondering if this is where this spiritual thing comes, where we come back to business problems are spiritual problems in disguise, that if we are really struggling with that, if it's no longer bringing us joy, it's because we're not clear on why we're doing it. Yeah, struggle from a Buddhist, pure Buddhist point of view, struggles the opposite of joy. In Sanskrit, we'd say Dukkha, which is struggle or stress or anxiety, suffering, and sukha, which is enjoyment and appreciation or bliss. And those two are the two sides of our chessboard. They're sort of interacting with each other in very interesting ways. I think any real deep joy has to include the notion of struggle and, and working with the aspects of challenge and so forth. Otherwise, our joy becomes very superficial. Well, that's what we said at the beginning. Harmony has to have dissonance in it. Yeah, and depth. Would you agree? I would. I mean, I'm interested about how those two things join, those two sides, the sort of joy versus struggle, when and the sort of harmony versus versus dissonance. But yes, I mean, can we experience joy without the struggle? And maybe is that the thing? Is do we get do we get so attracted by the idea of the joy? that the struggle takes away from it. And we, we sort of read too much into the struggle. We read it as taking away our joy rather than being a way towards it. Sure. And that's that shift of viewpoint is probably most of what spiritual practitioners are actually, when they get down to it, working on is how do you view the your relationship with reality as an obstacle and you're a victim? Or is it as an opportunity and you are somebody who can work with and through uh, whatever arises for you, which, of course, is going to include everything, including old age, sickness and death. We, we, can't, we can't just write those out of the program. Yes, it's all, it's all part of a rich life. Just going back to when you, you were being a practicing musician and composer, you then went to set up and run a meditation centre, and then you went into a sales job. That's right. <laughs> what mental processes did you have to go through? Was that a big challenge, or were you a natural salesperson? Yeah, I guess all those elements were already somewhere in me. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to connect with the you know, reality which included them. And what's interesting about you know, there's a chapter in the book called The Business Body. And it's like, I say the left leg is is research and development and kind of conceptualizing what you're doing, yeah. ideation. The right leg is actually turning that into a tangible, fungible product that you can sell. The left arm is uh, marketing. You know, you have to let people know that you have something like your podcast or, or whatever it is, your your work that you do. 
the right hand is like sales. You actually have to make a close, some kind of relationship in which there's an exchange of goods, you know, uh, remuneration. Then the head is the administration part of it. The heart is the essence of the business. And the ears are the customer service. You have to listen to people, what they're saying about what you're doing. So if somebody's starting out, I say, why don't you just see which part of your body is weak? Where are you weak? And let's strengthen that. Uh, A lot of people who are entrepreneurs are very weak in marketing and sales. They really don't like it. They don't know much about it. They think it's sort of tainted or something like that. But let's face it. If you found a great salesperson for your business, that would be your first hire in one second if you knew what you're doing. Yes, and not always the easy one. I've hired a lot of salespeople. <laughs> it's, um, great yeah. ones are hard to find. But why do we react so strongly? I mean, not, every, not all of us, but what, why is there this instinctive reaction against sales and marketing? Well, look, the safest thing to say is it's based in fear that you might actually succeed. <laughs> you know, I, I say that people, it's obvious that people are afraid to fail. But it's less obvious that they're afraid to succeed because that means, you know, further commitment, further manifestation, a lot more work, for example. And also there's a feeling of you can sort of stay within your little world, you know, and you don't have to go out into the bigger world. Sales and marketing puts you out into the bigger world. Now, I want to be really clear. I'm not ever, ever saying the purpose of any of this is so you become a big, fat, greedy, capitalist pig. That is not the outcome that we're looking for here. So success in the book is talked about as you you put it in your own terms. I want to have a reasonable mom and pop business, a nice bakery down on the, you know, on the down the road a little bit or a pub or whatever and make a reasonable living. That to me is defining success. The chairman of the biggest corporation in Great Britain might be a miserable person. We don't know. And so their success might not be complete in that way. So we're looking at success as a very total thing and also related to contentment as the sort of uh, twin sister of it, that you have some kind of contentment and appreciation. And coming back to the beginning, some kind of harmony and integration of those different bits. I mean, I I really like this idea of the body. I mean, we respond so strongly to analogies, don't we, and and images. This idea, actually, a body isn't complete unless it's got a right arm and a left arm. I mean, of course it is, but but when we think of something like that, we go, well, actually, ideally, we, we want to have two arms and two legs. Sure. And you could help people by just asking them to visualize their, if they're an entrepreneur, how are we doing with the marketing? How are we doing with sales? Sales is the easiest thing, you see. You just count the money. <laughs> That's It's numbers. And I've seen so many entrepreneurs who don't do that. I say, how are your sales going? And they kind of like talk about vision at that point. So that's a very interesting thing. What a good a good business person should not be afraid to create a timeline and assess their su- tangible success against projections and so forth. That should be part of your process. Has that become a very innate part of your own process? The sales and the marketing and the other things that that go with you doing your work as a freelance musician and teacher. Yeah. Well, it's it's so interesting because when you're freelance as you know, you have to my friend used to say you have to reinvent yourself every morning when you wake up. If you have a job, you just show up. Yes. You know, and they, they tell you what to do. But for people like us who are kind of creating our reality as we go, there's a tremendous uh, – I've seen people can lose momentum. They can lose inspiration and um, forget why they're doing it in the first place. So all those are kind of um, things to watch out for. But sales, for example – 
I don't know, I, I naturally sort of liked sales because it's, it's sort of like where the rubber hits the road. It's closing. It's, we're done. And a lot of my salespeople would go past the close when I was running that company, which is I see a lot of creative people do that. You get to the point where you're saying, OK, let's do this. And then they keep talking. <laughs> you have to know when to stop talking, stop selling and close the deal. And there is something about closing the deal isn't it, that's actually just fundamentally very satisfying. Somebody wants what you're offering. Somebody wants to pay good money for it and tend to engage with it. And so there's another point that we make at that point, which is uh, one of the chapters is don't negotiate against yourself. When they offer that, you know, I've seen people go like, OK, we'll give you five thousand dollars for that uh, song for a commercial. And you say, well, I could do it for four. You know, <laughs> so the idea of negotiating against yourself from a sort of poverty mentality base is something that we go, let, let's not do that. And that was advice I got very early on because I was doing it. I was so happy somebody wanted me to write a film score or to work on a project. I was like, you know, my lawyer, you would say, David, don't negotiate against yourself. Let, let, let them, let them uh, make the offer and we'll see what it is, you know. I mean, there are a lot of people out there who have a vested interest in us undervaluing ourselves. So there's going to be lots of messages that sort of, oh, yes, well, you're doing it for love and spirituality mm. and things. But actually, that's something which we really have to be aware of ourselves, isn't it, and, f and fight against. And every one of them should experience the so-called spiritual community, nonprofit and profit, because it's business. People, people are choosing these teachers to go teach at these workshops, at these learning centers, of course, partly because of their realization and their ability to communicate. But part, a big part of it is how many people are they going to get to come? It's, it's another version of what I learned in show business. And everybody wants to think, well, there's some area that could be immune, right? Isn't there some area where we can just, um, you know, live, you know, like in the Garden of Eden? But, you know, here where I live, they charge money for the apple. You can't just go take an apple. There is always heaven and earth that needs to be integrated. <laughs> yeah. And earth, the Buddha, the Buddha, by the way, is touching the earth in some of the most famous statues. And I'm not saying he's saying count your, count your uh, euros, but he is saying pay attention to practical reality, without a doubt. And what do you do to, in your life to keep you in touch with practical reality? Is, is that the power of meditation? Meditation is, of course, such a complex subject because every time I teach it, I see I say there's hundreds and thousands of methods that are all called meditation. So you have to be precise about what exactly you're advocating and what you're doing on the practice. I think for a lot of people, and I put myself in this category, I leave some time for just working with my state of mind in a very pure, innocent kind of way without trying to achieve any particular big deal result or create agendas. I look at it as a somewhat agenda-free time, you know, a timeout. And in that, you can see the basic energy of your mind, whether it's settled, unsettled, what you're dealing with in terms of habitual patterns and emotions, and just have a clean look at it and a kind of openness to who you are and make friends with yourself in a really decent kind of way. And uh, also rest, rest a little bit, rest your awareness by just simply being present with whatever is without, you know, trying to create any particular kind of outcome. And then you proceed, you reconnect with, um, you get up from that, you re-enter the action. That's, that's how I see meditation. It's a, it's a little bit of a cultivation of some stillness and some space so that when you enter the action, you have a little more clarity of mind. So for you, that and your music are absolutely intertwined by the sound of it. 
Well, yeah. I mean, what's interesting is I think I wouldn't be the only one to say this, and a lot of my students actually say this. When they do the practice and then they just start to do their artwork, it seems to flow better, more easily. There's, there's just a sense of flow state, you know, just being. Uh, the Hindus have a great word for it, the bhav, B-H-A-V, just the flow, being in the flow. And athletes know about this. It's just if, if you've done your homework and you've done your practice, now you're picking up your instrument or you're starting to write. It seems to flow. So I would almost say like the book that we're talking about, The Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck book, I don't remember writing it exactly. I remember sitting there. I remember typing. And the rest was kind of flowing. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of artists would agree, right, with that? Yes. And I think that's a state which a lot of us want to achieve. Yes, we don't necessarily remember it because our bit, the bit of the brain that involves memory simply isn't, doesn't need to be activated. <laughs> it simply can, can come out, which is extraordinary, the, I think, the brain science around it. Yeah. Oh, that's, in, it, oh, that's very interesting. I'd like to hear more about that sometime. Oh, there's so much around this whole meditation area we, we could talk about. How do you practically integrate it with your life and your work? So, you know, I had a teacher who was Tibetan, but on his way to America, he stopped in Great Britain and got a degree at Oxford in comparative religion. And so he spoke his English with Oxonian accent, you know, British accent. So when we asked him a question like you just asked, he, he had a one-word answer, which was scheduling, scheduling. Like any other habits then? Yeah, like, you know, and neuroscience would back this up. If you create kind of patterns of scheduling that are consistent, you know, that is the strongest way to develop new habits. Now, having said that, I have a wildly chaotic life, and I travel all over the world. I've been to Japan 25 times in the last five years, among many other places to teach. And what I like to say now is I hit the ground sitting instead of running. So I don't really pay a lot of issue to the time difference, the jet lag. I just try to like go, okay, I'm here now. Let's just relate to what's happening here. So I don't think people should model their early meditation career after me because I just find myself in a hotel room grabbing a pillow off the bed and sitting on the floor for a half an hour. If you have a house life and you have some kind of work and schedule, get up every morning half hour earlier and do your sitting. That's the best way by far. Right. Habits and routines, which is something that comes up again often on this um, and, the, and the power of that. So what kind of person would you be without meditation? <laughs> Uh, you know, first thought, best thought became a nut job. Uh, I've thought about that, you know, at times, and obviously I can't really know. That's uh, we can't really know, but I, I, I can know how it affects me in everyday life. Like I sat this morning and I feel like settled in a particular way, and less anxious or less stressed about having to do a, a wide variety of things. And I would say almost a psychophysical energy. There's a, a physical component to it, which people don't. People do talk about in advanced yogic practices. The psychophysical energy is quite clearly outlined, but in the everyday world, we're not really as aware of our psychophysical energy. In other words, we think something's either physical or mental. But my energy field feels more settled and kind of more almost uh, radiant or or receptive and uh, peaceful. I would say. I mean, my own meditation practice is much more erratic, but even then I can absolutely see that. But it seems that the benefits are so clear to anyone who's done just a small amount of it. And you, I know you touch on this in the book, but why do we find it so hard to do that scheduling? Why is it meditation seems to be sort of particularly hard to force ourselves to make time for? 
Well, I read a book. It was by a political guy. I can't remember the name right now. Not somebody I would politically agree with, but this this thing he said I, I did agree with. If you can't name your top three priorities, you don't have priorities. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, we have a certain random activator in ourselves over time where we just kind of like used to being all over the place. It's just become a habit for our energy to be somewhat diffused. Most people who come to meditation, that's their habit. That's their mental habit is for their energy to be diffused, their attention, their awareness is diffused all over the place. So you start by saying, okay, let's just pay attention to one thing, like the breath or something like that, or a mantra or whatever. And then the person's mind starts to come into a clearer focus. But the habit might always reinstate itself. Habits are, you know, like, why do people join gyms in January and then never go? It's the same question. So, you know, I think the first and most obvious answer is the strength of, and power of habit. And getting past that. And I think often we underestimate actually how hard habits can be to acquire that will withstand the sort of the bumps and knocks of, of everyday life. Yeah, I, I do not underestimate the power of habit. In fact, I wrote a book about it. Previous book is called Awakening from the Daydream. And it's really based on the six realms as, as per the Buddhist world, which are basically six different habits of lifestyles. Essentially, they're, you know, they're psychophysical, but how we manifest is clearly karmic in the sense that the past is heavily, heavily weighing in on, on the present. And then how we relate to that is weighing in on the future. And, and, and these things are interactive. So the idea of shifting something is no small feat. It is really not, you know, if you have deeply ingrained habits, transforming those is not an easy thing to do. Thank you so much for coming and sharing all this, David. There are so many things, so many directions I could take this conversation in. Yeah, <laughs> but me, me, be me too. So much there, which we could build on. But I know you have a lot of resources on your website. First, around your book, which is Creativity, Spirituality and Making a Buck. That comes out on the first day of release of this podcast, I think. You've got various workbooks and, and videos and a lot of other resources around it. And I think you travel widely as well teaching. Where can people find all that information, David? Well, so the easiest way is to go to David Nickturn, and that kind of fans you out to all the various kinds of activity. I also pay attention to facebook.com slash David Nickturn. I'm on Twitter and YouTube, but I think if you just go to the website, just remember that one thing, davidnickturn.com. And feel free to get in touch. And you can find all those links at creativelifeshow.com, the links to David's website and his new book. David, thank you very much for coming in. Well, you're very welcome. And I want to thank you too, Joanna. This was really a treat. I think people are, are fortunate to have you over there. And I'll bet the people that you work with are very appreciative of you. I can feel that. Oh, thank you. That's that's very kind. I love working with particularly professional creatives because we all juggle with these things all the time, don't we? The sort of the, the money, the headspace, the emotions. And I love this idea of actually what we're trying to achieve is, is harmony with, with dissonance. So, okay. <laughs> and thank you, you for taking the time to listen to the Creative Life Show. And um, if this has resonated, then maybe forward it to a friend with a note saying, hey, I thought you'd love this. And if you'd like a heads up of every new episode, come and sign up for the updates at creativelifeshow.com or follow me on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. All the links are there. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderfully creative week. Bye.